pray. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you back here in Monroe this morning. First time I've spoken in this building, spoken in almost every other building you have, I think, but haven't spoken here. And uh, I'm here in a kind of in-between week. We've been working all summer uh, through a series called The Book of the Twelve across the entire Grace family of churches. Uh, you're going to be moving into a new series in the fall here in the coming weeks. We've started to transition back to school from summer, so I'm the in-between guy who gets a chance to come in here and to be with you this morning. And this morning, I want to speak to you just for a few minutes about living the life of an overcomer. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you need a Bible, we've got ushers who are coming along each aisle. If you raise your hand, they'll give you a Bible. Um, and you can uh, turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Well, as we get started this morning, uh, I want to tell you that I love vacation. I know we're getting back to school, um, but I love vacation. Vacation is my favorite six months of the year. I'm just kidding. I don't have six months of vacation. That's called being a college student. That's what that is. Uh, I have a college student, so I feel that. But I love vacation, and vacation for me is really about three things. I want to eat big, I want to sleep in, and I want to play golf. Those three things, if they happen on vacation, it's been a great vacation. My wife, Kim, she loves the beach. She loves just going out to the beach, sitting on the sand, you know, seeing the waves crash in. God speaks to her at the ocean. And to be honest with you, I'm not really a beach guy. I love the beach community because usually there's lots of golf courses there, and I love the culture of the beach community. But I'm just not a fan of hot sand in all the places that hot sand can get, you know? And, and I've seen one too many Jaws movies to actually get in the water, right? Because every time I get in the water, I just feel like I hear the Jaws theme music in the background. Dunna, dunna, dunna. I'm just waiting for Jaws to get me. Most days, I'm happy just to be camped out by a pool beside the ocean. That's where I want to hang out. But there are a few things that will get me in the water. One of the things that will get me in the water is any chance I get a chance to go, any chance I get, uh, any time I get a chance to go snorkeling or scuba diving. Because I love just kind of going into the water and just seeing the scenery of all the things that God has created. And I remember on one particular vacation, my family was in Key Largo. My dad's a pastor and someone in the church had a vacation home there in Key Largo. They gave us access to it. And so we were down in Key Largo and the week was incredible. We were having great time sleeping in and playing golf and hanging out. But at the end of the week, the owner of the house came down and said, I want to take you guys out on a snorkeling trip. And so we got in the boat and we went a couple different places but this time when I got in the water, it wasn't the shark that got me. It was a little thing called the barracuda. I don't know if you've ever been in the water with a barracuda or not, or if you know what a barracuda looks like. They're these kind of slender, evil-looking fish. They have a mouthful of teeth, and they always swim with their mouth open as if they're saying, I want you to know what I could do to you if I want to. And they've got these eyes. They just hover around you. They've got these eyes that pierce right through you. It almost feels like whenever you're in the water, you should be confessing your sin to the barracuda in that moment because they can look right through you. And I'll never forget 
getting out of the boat at this one snorkel dive. And when we got out of the boat, there were two four-foot barracuda that were in the water with us. And they were so intimidating, my tendency was just to get back in the boat. Except there was something in the water that I really wanted to see. Jesus was in the water. I'm not joking, he was in the water. Or at least an eight and a half foot statue of Jesus was. They call it Jesus of the Abyss. Just off the coast of Key Largo, this eight and a half foot, 2,500 pound statue of Jesus made from the same cast of the one that is off the coast of Italy is 25 feet below the surface. And so here I am in the water. I really want to get to Jesus, but between me and Jesus are two barracuda. And in this moment, I'm trying to figure out, what do I do? Well, I did what any great person would do in that moment. I put my brother and my dad between me and the barracuda and swam around to Jesus, right? And as I dove down 25 feet below the surface, there's Jesus there with his arms open wide and a psalm that basically says this, there's nowhere you can go that Jesus isn't already there. I bring that story up this morning because for me it's a great picture of walking with God and life with Jesus. That as you try and accomplish God's best in your life, it would be awesome if that happened in a bubble, but the truth is Following God happens in the midst of a battle. There's always things between us and Jesus, things between us and God's best. And if we're not careful, those things will rob us of God's best. We'll just get back in the boat and miss the things that God wants to do through us. So this morning, I want to talk to you about how to live your life, even in the middle of incredible threat even in the middle of incredible obstacles, following God and seeing God do the extraordinary with you. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 17 this morning. We're going to read this memento style and that we're going to start at the back and then we're going to start the end of the story and then move forward with it. And it's one of our most familiar stories. It's a story of David and Goliath. So many cultures we have stories that you can almost complete the title of, you know, like Beauty and the Beast. You know, we, we have those kinds of stories. In the Bible, we have those kinds of stories like Daniel and the Lion's Den, or Jonah and the Fish, or David and Goliath, right? Even if you haven't been around God that much, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. Or at least you've been impacted by it, even in ways that you may not even know. We're going to start here in verse 40. This is the last scene of this defining moment for David. It says this, Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. With his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to Jesus, to David, not Jesus. Jesus isn't there yet. To David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's some serious trash talk going on in this moment. But I love the Bible because sometimes it lets its heroes talk trash back, all right? So David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And this is the moment where the the music would start to fade in, the cameras would start to zoom in, and here it is. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly from the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand. He struck the Philistine and killed him. We love these kinds of moments, don't we? Moments where the underdog does something extraordinary and wins the day. It's the reason why movies like Hoosiers and Rudy and Rocky and Miracle captivate us. I mean, you could just be kind of hanging out at home, but if Rocky's on, all of a sudden you're like, I want, I want to watch that, or Hoosiers or, or Miracle. There, there's something about these stories where the underdog wins that captivate our hearts. And it's the kind of story that we're incredibly familiar with. Maybe you've heard it so many times, you expect the ending. But it's rarely the kind of story that we expect with our own lives. See, somewhere along the line, I think we forget that the Bible characters didn't know that they were Bible characters. David didn't know that he was the David of the Bible. He didn't even know in this moment that he was in his defining moment. He's just an ordinary kid in the middle of an ordinary life who God used to do the extraordinary. When David walks on the scene here, it's not a pretty picture. He walks into a valley and encamped on both sides of the valley. On one side are the Philistines' army, which is Israel's arch enemy, and the people of God named Israel. And every day, an eight-and-a-half-foot giant will walk into the center of the valley and challenge the people of Israel. His name is Goliath. And the idea is that he would fight one other person, and whoever wins, the, the entire country of the others would become slaves to the other. And so every day, Goliath is coming out, and, and Goliath's name, by the way, you could translate it revealer or exposer, and this is who Goliath is in this story. Everywhere Goliath goes, he's exposing things. He exposes Israel, who is kind of captive and paralyzed in their fear. 
He exposes Saul as a kind of poser king of Israel. But he also will expose David, and David's name means beloved one, one who lives after the heart of God. I mean, the only reason that David's on the scene is because his dad has given him an errand. See, he's too young to go to war, but his dad said, take these cheese and crackers to your brothers who are men of fighting age. But while David's brothers were watching the war, David has been training for battle. And when David shows up into this moment, he sees what others can't. He risks what others won't. And he trusts when others don't. And the question is why? Why is David able to see an opportunity where everyone else sees an obstacle? Why is David able to function in faith when everyone else is paralyzed by their fear? And to answer this question, we've got to go back in the story to see what David's been doing leading up to this moment that transforms the way he lives into this moment. Go back to verse 32, because it's in 32 through 37 that we get a picture here of the kind of life that creates this kind of overcoming moment. Verse 32, it says this, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And here's the big key verse. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Three clues this morning from verses 32 through 37 that help us and compel us to live this kind of overcoming life. Number one is this. David sees what others can't because David has been where others haven't. David sees what others can't because David has been where others haven't. In other words, what I'm trying to say is David's defining moment for God was not David's first moment with God. That back in the mundane, back in the places that no one sees, David's been cultivating a relationship with God. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, David gets anointed king. It won't be until 18 chapters later that the anointing turns into an inauguration. But in the middle of that 
kind of waiting moment, in the middle of those question moments, in the middle of the ordinary, boring moments, mundane moments of David's life, he's been cultivating a relationship with God that will thrust him into this defining moment. Back before David does any of the big things, he's become faithful and doing lots of the small things. We sit in a room like this this morning, and if we would probably take a poll, many of us would want to see God do great things through our life. We want to see God do big things. But, but the secret to doing big things with your life is to do lots of small things because it's in the small things that you begin to build the kind of faith that it takes for big things to happen. I wanted to give you a little illustration of this this morning, you know, because it's this move from, from fear to faith that happens in the midst of the mundane, in the midst of the small things. And so I brought in a little toy, you know, called the Jack in the Box. This is long before there were like PS5s, you know, back when you actually had toys, not virtual toys, but actual toys. And as a kid, probably many of you grew up with the jack-in-the-box, and this is a thing that we love to give the kids. I'm not sure why we love to give it to kids, but, but we, we love the jack-in-the-box, and maybe you remember playing with the jack-in-the-box where, you know, you're kind of doing it, and you, have, you remember the song? All around the bridge, the monkey chased the weasel, the weasel thought it was all in fun. <laughs> you know, that one right there, right? And you remember the first time you played with this as a kid? When the clown popped up, it scared you to death, right? And you threw the jack-in-the-box in the corner, right? Because you were scared to death. But what happened as you began to play over and over again with the jack-in-the-box? What happened is that you began to recognize the tune, and as you began to recognize the tune, you start to look forward to what you once were afraid of. This is the way it is with God. So many times we want to step into defining moments. We wonder how do people step into those moments and do great things. Well, here it is why. They, they, they've, in, the, in the small things, they've learned to recognize God's tune. And so in that moment where everyone else is afraid, they step into in faith because what they once were afraid of, they now can start to look forward to. If you're a business person in the room, you know this is true. We love in America the myth of the overnight success. Can I tell you, there are no overnight successes. There are overnight successes that are 20 years in the making. We love the defining moment story, but no one tells you the story behind the story where there were all kinds of failures. Maybe three companies failed before this one succeeded. There were all kinds of moments where they didn't know what was happening, all kinds of obstacles in the water that no one sees, no one you know, really calling them an innovator, everyone calling them an idiot because that's what they call you before you're successful. You're an idiot, and then once you're successful, they call you an innovator. But it's in those moments that you learn the kinds of things that will help you step into a defining moment when everyone else in the world backs away from it. David sees what others can't because he has been 
where others haven't. And in those mundane places, he's begun to recognize the tune of God in his life. Number two, David risks what others won't because he values what others didn't. In other words, David values his past with God, but he's not stuck in the past with God. He knows that what he's experienced in the past with God is only as good as it builds a bridge to his future with God. He doesn't simply live in the past. He's not just trying to get back to the past. He remembers the past, but he remembers the past in order to create the future. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. Maybe some of you are just getting back from the epic trip a couple weeks ago where you got a chance to go to Israel. It was one of the things that I wanted to do with my life because I'm a person of this book and I wanted to step into the places where Jesus walked. I wanted to see the places that so much of the story of my life has been anchored in. And I remember going to Israel and just being able to walk in the places Jesus walked and to go to so many of the settings in which the Old Testament stories have taken place. But as I was there in Israel, one of the things that you know, I had kind of expected because of other people that had gotten there it was kind of a struggle is that everywhere you go on every holy site, there was a church that was there. And the reason that church was there is because Constantine's mother wanted to do something to honor Jesus. And so at all those holy sites, she went back and built a church as kind of a monument to mark that site. Now what she meant to do to honor now, 2,000 years later, as you walk into there and you're in the church, you, you, it, it almost it's like it, it stands in the way of authentic experience. Because, you know, you've got the church there, you've got the gift shop there, and all this kind, kind of commercialization that's there. And so what she built 2,000 years ago to honor Christ, now all of a sudden stands in the midst of authentic experience to Jesus. And so you're there, and I want to see the sights, and I want to see it as it was, but there's this, this, this building and this stuff going on that kind of is standing in the way. And it reminds me what our temptation is as a people of God. When God does something in the past, our tendency is to create a monument out of it. But I want to suggest to you today, the way that you honor the past best is not with the monuments that you create, but the movements that you make. In other words, it would be really easy now that we're here in this room at Monroe to just think about the past of God in our church and to build a church that stands as a monument. But I want to suggest to you, this building is not a monument. It's a missional tool. 
And if we think we've arrived because God has done something in the past, then we're going to miss what God wants to do in the future. I've got to tell you, I get a chance to go around a lot of churches around our country. And I get a chance to coach and consult. Can I tell you the biggest thing that is in the way of most churches creating their future? It's that they're stuck in their past. And especially coming out of a moment like COVID, the tendency of churches is to just kind of return to what was. If we could just get back there, then everything would be all right. Now, all throughout the Bible, God will call us to remember. Literally, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses' last words to the people of God going into the promised land, it's remember. Don't forget, remember. But while God always calls us to remember, God never calls us to nostalgia. Nostalgia is when you try and recreate the past. Memory in the Bible is when you recall the past in order to create the future. So we recall the past, but we're not supposed to be stuck in the past. We recall the past, but we're not to live in the past. We recall the past, but we're not to just make a a, a memorial or a, a monument to it. We recall the past in order to fuel the present and the future and the movement that God wants to create. I think this is important whenever we stand at funerals because our tendency even at funerals is to simply make a monument of a person. But I want to suggest to you the way you honor the dead best is not in the monuments you create. It's in the way you choose to live your life to stand on the shoulders of giants to dare to believe for tomorrow that the God, we just sang about it the way maker who's been faithful in the past will be faithful in the future that he won't do the same thing that he's done in the past but the same God will work in a new way in the future and the question for us is this will we risk what others won't because we value what others wouldn't or are we just going to return to the past and live in nostalgia trying to recreate the past as some glory day of old God's people remember the past but they're not stuck in the past. They use the past to create the future. Overcomers, they see what others can't because they've been where others haven't. They risk what others won't because they value what others wouldn't. And number three, David trusts when others don't because he experienced what others didn't. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. David had a radical trust in the goodness of God. I got to tell you, for many years of my life, growing up as a Christian, I knew that God was right, but I didn't really believe that God was good. 
I knew he was right. I just thought he was kind of arbitrarily right, that he was up in heaven just trying to test everyone to see if they'll follow him. I didn't really believe in the goodness of his heart. And, and ironically, through some of the deepest valley moments of my life, the moments where I saw dreams fall apart, the moments where I look at my life and there are definitely barracuda in the water, there are Goliaths in front of me, oftentimes it's in these kinds of moments. In my life, it's been these kinds of moments where everything has gone bad that I learned to see that God was good. And when you experience God in that way, it's something you never get over. Now here's the thing about trust. You don't know trust. See, I grew up in a Christian home that was around the stuff. I, I knew about God but I didn't really trust God. See, trust is not, if you think about, you know, a, a little kid playing with their dad, where maybe they're on the stage like this, they're going to jump to him. On the stage, I can know that dad is trustworthy, but I haven't trusted dad. Trust isn't something you know. Trust is something that you experience. It happens in the jump. And as you experience him catching you over and over again, Trust is built. So trust is built through experience. And I got to tell you, when it comes to dreaming with God, I've seen God do all kinds of things. I've dreamed with God, and I've seen God do amazing things, and I've also dreamed with God and seen my life fall apart. But every dream that has died, I've seen God resurrect in a way that stuns my imagination. And as I've been with God in those experiences, the trust has begun to develop that God is good. He's not just right, he's good, and that I can trust him with more and more of me and with more and more of the dreams that he's placed inside of me. You know, we live in a world today where it feels like every other month a superhero movie is coming out. I mean, Marvel has kind of captured, you know, our imaginations. And, you know, it used to be just Batman and Superman, but now there's, Thor, there's so many different kinds of superheroes. And in the world that we live in, the superheroes are extraordinary people. They have extraordinary gifts. But if you go behind the scenes in the comic books of these heroes, when it comes to our superheroes, these are extraordinary people who really just want to be ordinary. Really, Superman just wants to be Clark Kent. Batman just wants to be Bruce Wayne. In the Bible, it's the exact opposite. The heroes of the Bible are not extraordinary people who just want to be ordinary. There are ordinary people who dare to do the extraordinary. See, I believe that we want our superheroes to be extraordinary so it gives us an excuse not to live heroically. But the Bible won't let us do that. Because all throughout the Bible, these are ordinary people that don't know their Bible characters. 
They don't know all the things that God is going to do through them. They're people like Gideon who are hiding in a wine press because they're not sure God could use them. They're people like David who's been passed over by everybody else. They're people like Daniel who's been kidnapped and taken to a hostile country. They're people like Esther who have been taken captive into a king's family. They're not extraordinary people. They're ordinary people who have an extraordinary trust in who they believe God is. And it's in that that they begin to see what others can't. They begin to risk what others won't. And they trust when others don't. So this morning, we sit at the beginning of another school year. And I know it may feel at times mundane and ordinary. But what if you believed that God wanted to accomplish the extraordinary through you? What if you were able to see what others can't? Because in the ordinary and the mundane, you, you began to get familiar with God's tomb. What, what if you chose today, not to just try and recreate the past, but to thank God for the past in a way that would propel you into the future? And what if today, instead of just knowing about God, you jump? in a way that cultivated new experience with God. See, here's the deal. So we come to the end of the talk. Truth is, God wants to do something through your life. He's compelling you, and I know you feel ordinary, but he wants to do something extraordinary to you. And now, it's your turn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness that you aren't just right and great but you are good and we come here today maybe some of us with barracuda in the water Goliath standing in front of us a dream lodged deep inside of us but those things tending to rob your best from us God I pray today that you would call us to a different kind of way, a kind of way that is throughout your story. That even though we might feel ordinary, you are calling us and desire to do the extraordinary with us. God, I pray not just for us personally, but for Grace Monroe. May we never settle just for what you have done, but may the great work that you have done here be used not to create monuments, but missional tools 
that fill the future. May this campus stand as a prophetic picture for the things that you still want to restore in this city. And may the people here be conduits of the extraordinary in every ordinary place they enter. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Hey, we're going to respond in worship today. So we're going to sing. We've also got communion at the sides. And this is, this is unique because Jesus, just like we talked about today, was great at loading the extraordinary into ordinary things. The most ordinary things in Jesus' day were bread and wine. It's just a loaf of bread and wine. But inside of that, he created a new kind of covenant. He says, this bread is my flesh, and the wine is my blood. And in that covenant is a new future. So even though it feels just ordinary bread and juice, locked within this ordinary picture is an extraordinary future that God invites us to taste and see that it is good. So we're going to sing. We're going to open up the communion stations. And I just invite you to respond to God right here in the midst of the ordinary and to dare to believe for the future in your life. So guys, lead us in that.